To the sound of uh, Pueblos Unidos by um, Fred Jeffsky, uh, the opening jingle for our podcast, Start Wearing Details to Follow. Welcome to the second live recording in Berlin. We're really happy to be here back at the Volksbühne. Um, the political urgency of uh, Pueblos Unidos is something that um, we were looking for in all the podcasts for. Uh, people who came to us with new ideas about democratic thinking. That's the uh, purpose of this podcast, to find people um, in tech, in politics, in activism, um, to talk about democracy in the 21st century. Um, my name is Georg Dietz, and together with Karen Patterson, we host this evening. We do, and uh, it's lovely to be here. Tonight we have Yevgeny Morozov with us. He is a, um, an author, a critic, a thinker uh, on tech and the internet and uh, the issues that we find interesting, as uh, Georg alluded to. He's written two uh, books, The Net, Net Delusion and uh, the more recent To Save Everything, Click Here. And... I am very happy that you are here. We are very, we are very happy that you are here tonight. It's, it's an interesting time um, for people thinking about tech, the internet, the future of everything, uh, the themes you write about. Uh, because for someone who has been following your writing, um, and I guess many people here tonight have been doing that, they know that you are... Today it's very mainstream to be... Uh, um, to be critical uh, about social media and the effects of social media on, on democracy. We're kind of entering this new phase, maybe, um, with a pushback from politics, with a pushback from consumers, partly with these scandals and crises around Facebook and so forth. But you were very early on seeing, um, seeing that, that this could happen. And... I would like to start with asking about your concept, your idea of solutionism that is important in your writing. Uh, and the idea, as I read it, um, of Silicon Valley as the harbinger of easy solutions to very, very complicated societal problems. And if you think in the light of the recent discussion and recent debates about uh, Silicon Valley and the future of 
social media, the internet, that it's still a, a concept that's, that's valid and that's interesting. <clears throat> and welcome. Sure, well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here back in Berlin and um, for what looks like an interesting evening. Um, so I have published my last book five years ago and I've written it even earlier, so six years ago. And in that time, my own thinking has evolved quite a bit. Uh, I would say that I became much more politicized and radicalized in a way that I wasn't before. Uh, would I use the concept of solutionism if I had to rewrite that book now? I probably would not. Uh, so I can tell you about the... I mean, there are certain elements in it which I think are still key, but I would not present it as I did in my last book, which is was almost a philosophical critique, a moralistic critique of this, you know, know-nothings in Silicon Valley who have a solution for everybody. I, you know, I walked away from that type of attack uh, because I ultimately think that to discuss technology now, you really need to ground it in history and economics and geopolitics much more so than in some kind of moralistic philosophical critique of how far technology should impinge onto what it means to be human and what it means to live and, and so forth and so forth, which is still predominantly the discourse which drives a lot of the opposition to technology and these firms in Europe and in America. I wrote, after that book, I wrote an essay which basically made the case that much of what passes for technological criticism is actually just a reactionary position towards uh, technology, and it should be dismissed, and I've been guilty of it, and I said I don't want to do it, and I haven't written a single piece of technology criticism since then, I hope. Uh, so in that sense... Uh, That's funny, because it's all there in your book, in the foreword. You, you say, you know, there's a reactionary critique to the way... Uh, to my way of sure. arguing, and I and think that my kind of post or non-reactionary way still ended up being a little bit reactionary. Yeah. In that, it's 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 all fine to be talking about the ways in which certain functions that used to be performed by other actors, the welfare state, you know, the legal system, the policing system, and so forth, are now performed by technology firms. I think it's a valid description of a trend that is hard to deny. Whether it has to be described through the lens of, let's say, history of neoliberalism or history of austerity or through the eyes of the financial crisis, which has essentially shrunk a lot of the budgets, or whether it has to be told through a moralistic story of how technology companies are taking on more and more responsibilities that we humans previously used to do, it's a choice. I used to side with the kind of second, more moralistic explanation in the past. Now I'm firmly with the first one. So, you know, and I don't think that there is any narrative that can explain to the power that Silicon Valley has accumulated that does not engage with the way in which massive amounts of money have been put at its disposal as a result of low interest rates, cheap borrowing, financial crisis, and so forth. It's, it's, it's a story that will be very hard to reconcile with reality if all you say is that these people are anti-human, non-humanistic, and so forth. So, No, I, I very much uh, sympathize with that uh, turn, uh, I guess, coming from social democracy, coming from a progressive side of politics. So 
and trying to understand the for- forces of history through, yeah. I guess, you know, materialist changes mm. in the econo- economic base and so forth. And I wanted to ask you about a recent column that you wrote about um, the, the tech. Com- I, I, th- I think this is an underreported truth about uh, the tech companies because we talk about privacy issues now, and that's been in the focus of in the recent um, scandals around Facebook. But you also talk about the just the ac- accumulation of uh, net worth and that so much of the American um, rise of the stock market and kind of bounce back from uh, financial crisis is actually due to the uh, rising market uh, values of these, of these companies. And at the same time, they don't, uh, as in the old industrial age, they don't really employ any people. So it's a it's a new it's a new economy where a lot of value and growth in prosperity is tied up uh, in these huge uh, monopolistic companies, and that also affects the real economy. And mm-hmm. uh, if you, my question would be uh, how to think about that, and if we should talk more about. Uh, breaking up uh, anti-monopolistic um, policies, breaking up of these companies more than the privacy issues? Well, there is a lot in this question. Let me yeah. try to digest <laughs> all of it. Um, so, um, first of all, it's, as, as we have you know, already kind of highlighted, it's very hard to understand what's driving the developments both in the United States and in China and outside of them if you do not follow the money, right? And if you follow the money, as many of the people who follow tech know, they know where the largest pile of money is. And right now, that largest pile of money is in the so-called vision fund, right? Which is a big fund set up by SoftBank, a Japanese firm, uh, which originated in telecommunications, which managed to enroll sovereign wealth funds uh, of Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and are now about to sign up uh, Bahrain in order to invest this money in all the promising startups. And it's them who are essentially driving up the valuations of these firms. We're not talking about uh, publicly traded companies like Google or Alphabet or Amazon. We're talking about companies like Uber, which are not publicly traded, and whoever invests in them has to make a valuation as to what they're worth. When you have a company like SoftBank, together with the sovereign wealth funds, coming on the scene and basically saying that, you know, we have $100 billion available to invest, and within a year we might have another 100 to $200 billion on the table, of course it drives up the valuations of these firms, right? So that's something that you need to keep in mind. Second thing, where does a company like SoftBank get its money? So everybody who writes about it assumes that they just happen to be very profitable. To some extent it's true. To another extent, they're just basically borrowing money because because of the low interest rate environment in Japan, but also globally, SoftBank managed to borrow $130 billion, right, which is a lot of money, of which $100 billion they can spend on uh, startups and buying other things. And you'll not be able to understand what's driving what in tech unless you actually keep your eyes focused on how much it costs to borrow, what you can borrow from, and who's doing the borrowing. So it's a very boring kind of stuff, but it needs to be done if you really want to understand uh, what on earth is going on. 
with regards to what needs to be done about these firms, I can go on, or you can narrow it. Do you want me to go on, or I mean, I can. No, I think we. I just don't uh, want to be speaking are, for. <laughs> no, no, I think it's super interesting and super relevant. I'm, I'm, I'm the least uh, techie person uh, in the room, I guess, uh, um, at least on stage. So I, I would, I would sort of try to slow it down a little okay. the, the discourse, um, or take sort of the step back towards the beginning where you sort of said the interesting sort of you opened up this mm -hmm. five years. Everything is so super fast about the present. So, so yesterday we said that the, the, the theme should be surveillance capitalism. Today it's something else. Today it's, I think, either geopolitics um, of, of, of the big companies or AI, which we might talk about. But, but, mm -hmm. but the other question so that was raised by the Facebook scandal was, was the whole issue of understanding what is done with data. So if, and, and if we try to... So if, I think one of the core questions that, that would interest me in this discourse is what is, what is the problem with technology? What is, what is sort of, how can you, can you narrow it down? How, how, how do you under, what do you have to understand to find a solution, again, to this problem, to a way out of this problem? And, and, and I guess sort of what you said about this shift towards politics is maybe something that, that would lead you to... Um, be able to talk about, for example, data in a different way, because you see data um, either as a tool for states to um, yeah, so, so, so surveil or control or manipulate citizens, but it's also the material for citizens to uh, gain freedom with from companies or from states. So, um, so, so that, that maybe it's not really a step back then to talk about data, but, but before getting into this a geopolitical race. Um, what 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 is the politics of technology? What is what is what is uh, sort of an, an, a progressive approach uh, to to using data in a way that's emancipatory and not not suppressive in your in your view? Sure. So I don't have to to to, to go back to the original question you asked. What, what's the problem with technology? I personally have no problem with technology. Uh, you know, and I but technology towards, is a problem no, no, no. for people. So uh, well. I mean, I'm not sure whether it's the correct description of it in that our interactions with certain systems that clearly have a technological component to them are a problem, but it does not mean that the same technological systems organized on a very different set of legal and economic norms would not uh, offer people a very different experience politically and subjectively. Uh, so in that sense, you know, I'm, I'm much more on the libertarian side of that debate in that, you know, I don't That's think... That's a surprise. Well, no, but I mean, I, oh, I'm yes. not on the Ray Kurzweil kind of let's embrace the singularity, but I'm not going to go and tell people how to live and how to relate to technology. Now, the problem that I think most people have, or at least how it's being framed in the debate, is that the systems people interact with that are being criticized as technology are not at all technological. Uh, in that, you know, you can, of course, say that Twitter is a technology and Facebook is a technology. For me, it's an uh, oversimplification of the debate in that I can build you a very different social networking system with a very different uh, mechanism that will drive the interaction on it if you decouple it from the need to accumulate data in order to sell advertising, right? So in that sense, I'm just not sure how far you would go in continuing to frame it as a question of technology and tech because ultimately it's a discourse that helps the enemy, so to say, and we can define who the enemy yeah. is, uh, much the more enemy. than it helps. Well, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to frame it as a debate about essentially 
an economic and political system that we used to call capitalism, some of us still do, uh, which, of course, is not the industrial capitalism of the yesteryear, and it's not the financialized capitalism, even though it has elements of both. Uh, it's um, a system which essentially has to be cognized and analyzed in those terms. So it has to be analyzed as being linked to certain economic and political processes, and once decoupled from them, it can be repurposed for a very different emancipatory agenda. I don't think there is anything particularly surprising in what I'm saying. The problem is that much of this debate right now gets captured uh, still by this binary of whether you are a technophobe or technophile and to what extent and how you relate to technology. And sort of show, so the, there is, to talk about the politics of technology, I think is far less productive than talking about technology as politics. So talking about technology as politics is a somewhat different conversation than talking about the politics of technology. No, I, I, I agree with that. And I have a question about, because the way, I mean, the technology, the way I think about it, and uh, maybe that's what you mean, is that the technology we get is a result of the society that we have, the reg regulations we have, the institutions we have, the, f the, f the frames we have for things to grow and develop. And if society would have been organized differently, then we would have had... Um, then technology would have been organized differently. And I would like to ask you about data specifically um, and how you think, because if you talk about um, data capitalism or this new phase that we're in where uh, companies extract uh, people's uh, personal data, the value of people's personal data, could you, and I just want to try out this idea on you, sometimes I think about this time as as, uh, on the, as similar to the time before trade unions in the labor market, that you had uh, capitalists extracting the value of workers and um, the fundamental asymmetry of power between um, companies and ind individual people who needed to organize and needed to aggregate their power in the labor market to be able to, um, to negotiate with Uh, mm -hmm. with capitalists. And there seems to be something missing in the ecosystem when we talk about data. And maybe this gets too technical, but uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking that maybe what we would need today uh, to sort of balance the power, the asymmetry of the power structure is uh, for people to organize uh, and to, for data to be aggregated and someone to negotiate on behalf of Uh, citizens uh, and not let companies, monopolistic companies, extract value in this colonial uh, in, in this colonial way. And how should we do? Do you agree with that? And how should we organize this? I'm just I'm, sure, sure, sure. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm looking for solutions here. I'm looking for a progressive uh, sure, reform mean, look, so, agenda here. Let me try to unpack as much as I can. Mm. So, first of all, uh, it seems that. We're living through a transition period uh, in that it's true that for the last 15 years or so, data has primarily been collected by the Googles and Facebooks of this world, primarily in order to optimize the sale of advertising and to you know, essentially make more money per ad sold yeah. by learning more about us. In the process of doing that, they have discovered that there are secondary uses both to the data and to having 
a billion large army of people who through their actions can train their systems uh, to deliver something approaching intelligence, which can then be packaged as a service and sold to other clients. Right? So essentially now we have all of these firms from Amazon to Google to Facebook offering services to governments and businesses, which seek to repackage some of the data that they mm. have accumulated as essentially a business function, recognizing images, recognizing voice, recognizing other things, faces, and so forth. That proves to be somewhat more profitable, if you look at the profit margins, and not just at absolute numbers, uh, than selling advertising. Mm. And it's plausible that in the next five, 10 years, this transition will accelerate, and more of these firms partly because of regulatory pressure related to fake news and so forth, will actually jump into uh, selling more and more services and offering less and less advertising, which means that ultimately somebody will have to subsidize all the activities that we have taken for granted, because right now they offer it for free. Search, email, video, all of that is free to some extent because they still need the data to extract for advertising purposes. Once they no longer need to extract that, that raises a big question mark. Who's going to pay for that? So that's, that transition thing is very important to keep in mind because it will also define what the right political response would be. Right? Uh, and you know, when Facebook says that we are experimenting with a way to let people pay for using Facebook and they will not see any ads, Facebook knows that with the data it has, it can actually have a business-facing operation that potentially might earn it more money than the advertising business. Just like web services earns Amazon more profit than selling goods, especially if you look at profit margins. Now, so that's a very important trend to keep in mind. Second, when it comes to data, of course, much depends on how you would like to approach analytically the value that is generated with it. So you can, of course, if you follow the orthodox Marxist line, you can say that under capitalism, what is the source of surplus value? It's the surplus labor. Okay? Because orthodox Marxists primarily think that all surplus value comes from workers working a little bit more than what they're paid for. It does not come for orthodox Marxists. It does not come from women working freely in the home. It does not come from capitalists appropriating the land through colonialism and so forth. If you want, so of course, in that sense, if you think that everything comes from essentially expropriation of surplus labor, then your response would be along the lines of trade unions. What we need to do is for people to organize because you think that that data, to some extent, can be counted as some kind of digital or material labor, which is what a lot of theorists argue. If you have a more expansive definition of how value in capitalism is produced, and you do not limit uh, it analytically just to the extraction of uh, surplus labor, and you also incorporate all the other ways in which value has been extracted without any compensation through law, convention, religion, morality, colonialism, imperialism, you might have a different approach. You might say that what we want is not necessarily a trade union-like struggle, but what we want is a different ownership regime whereby you know, that data will, by default, belong to somebody else. It might belong to me as a citizen. 
and not necessarily me as a consumer. It might belong to my neighborhood. It might belong to some other social entity. You might have many other solutions to it. You know, it's not necessarily... But you would need an entity to negotiate on... I mean, I'm just thinking about the sure, but ecosystem that and not, the power, the asymmetry of power. That, no, that of entity course, no. can be a okay. political party that will choose that as, you know, as it's... Uh, when feminists were doing the movement for wages for housework, they did not create a feminist mm. union, even though some of them existed. I mean, there are other ways in which you can essentially push back, which would require strategic organization through various social groups and movements, but it would not necessarily need to be a trade union because you would actually reject the idea that uh, surplus value in this case comes from work. Because it's also it's a very tricky argument to say that every time I walk down in my street and a smart light records my data somehow, and the fact that I have walked there and generates value for Cisco, Philips, or Google, I am working for them. Clearly, there is some value that they are extracting from this activity, but the fact that some value is extracted in no way automatically implies that I'm working. I mean, it's, I don't want to get into the sure. very... Uh, esoteric parts of value theory, but ultimately it's an open question. But so, I mean, Karen is the social democrat here, so she's obviously for trade union solutions. And it's interesting to listen to your pushbacks, of, uh, which, which seems to be um, that you tend towards being more radicals. As, I'm open as to other say. entities. And, I'm just and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out a way to you know level I'm also not level sold the playing field. The idea that we should continue to be working. I mean, I'm not sold on that, that at all. That would be my question. <laughs> so, if Ari, so if you suggested in a way that the politics of technology or the politics of data could work in a way of a reenactment of 20th century or late 19th century ideologies, social democracy versus Marxism or socialism. So, if you have to uh, change the ownership structures or the view of ownership. As a, as a societal concept as opposed to remedies of re reform. But, but the question is, is that what you're saying or, or, or what is your, your politics or is there another more esoterical, interesting 21st century solution? Maybe it's a techno-anarchism, so a, a third way of, of dealing with that. Which a also, third way? <laughs> or fourth way, maybe. Um, but what is your politics of technology? And, and Yeah, basically. And, I mean, look... Uh, You can answer this question theoretically and say that what we want is a social democratic model for data. The problem is that once you set that as, once you set it against not just the debate about technology, but the debate about global capitalism as such, you'll be faced with the impotence of social democracy to tame it. So as it exists now, not as it might exist once we have tamed it. In that sense, I'm looking for when I'm looking for solutions, I have to look at the really existing ones. And I'm afraid to tell you that I don't think social democracy is working great. Not vis-a-vis -vis yeah, vis -vis Silicon Valley or surveillance capitalism or anything of that kind. It just seems not to have Come adequate... up with a better idea. Well, he's coming. Well, I mean, we don't come up with a better idea. I mean, you can find, of course, ways in which you would be able to protect certain communities. But the problem is that, I mean, look, you have to stare it in the face. The leftist project has no content. Has no content because the idea of a worldwide leftist revolution by the workers who are supposed to be in solidarity with each other, it's that. I mean, it's that not ideationally and ideologically. Ideologically, you can believe in it. Practically, 
it's very hard to build solidarity across borders between workers of different countries. That's why we have this right-wing uh, current, much of it driven by the workers, who want to have some kind of socialism in one country, which for them means shutting the borders and doing everything. No, that no, I agree. Can. I'm just, I'm super uh, here and now. I, I agree with everything you say, but I'm, I'm just thinking, so we have these huge companies extracting value of... At this point, of, the of the, of the yeah. data that we uh-huh. have, and there's this uh, symmetry where I cannot. There's nothing I can do as an individual to because sure. my data, my individual data, is worth nothing. It's only the aggregate, uh, the aggregation of data that is worth anything. And mm-hmm. at the same time, exactly as you say, we have. Um, a version of capitalism now where more and more of the value and the growth uh, are within these companies. I don't think this is healthy. I don't think it's fair. Uh, so I'm just trying to think of ways to uh, even to level the playing field. And m- maybe unions is the wrong concept. I don't know. But there needs to be someone or some entity uh, negotiating f- on behalf, not of the companies, but of uh, the people being robbed of um, what they have. But- Yes, but again, if you situate it in the reality of contemporary capitalism, as it exists in China and the United States, you clearly realize that negotiating is not enough because you need to know what it is you will be doing with that data. And unless that data is tied to some kind of a counter-project, which would also need to be tied to some kind of a revitalize digital industrial strategy. Really, do we, do we need to have all those answers before doing anything? Then well, I'm mean, just... There are plenty... Of, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty yeah. of things for you to do in Berlin. I mean, just few of them pay off. I mean, the, 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 the problem is not that there is nothing for people to do. The question is, how do you build... And what, what is the problem you're trying to resolve? If the problem you're trying to resolve is creating a different ownership regime for the data in itself. I think it can be easily solved. I'm clever kid in Berlin will come to you and say we have a blockchain solution which will nicely reappropriate data rights between individuals and social entities and cities. Boom, you have it. Is it the problem you're trying to solve? Me? No. So I'm trying to, again, understand what that data is used for. What it's currently used for is to build AI and to then use that AI to offer services remotely, globally. So you will have a company like Uber, backed by Saudi Arabia, offering services all over the world, automated, in an automated fashion, which you know you have to understand, is it a problem or is it not a problem? If you think that this is a problem because essentially your local economy will be starved of resources, no matter how much less consumers will be paying for their rights, then you have to address it not just by reallocating data rights and data ownership rights. You have to solve it by having an actual ambitious strategy for how do you counter the concentration of power over AI in the hands of SoftBank, China, and the United States, which is where you have to act on a European level. And you can have a counter strategy. It's just that I can assure you it will not be based on some idea of worker solidarity across borders, it will be based on the idea of us needing to defend the German car industry against the invasion of the Chinese and Saudi Arabians and the, uh, and the Saudis and the Americans. 
Alas, that will be a practical and pragmatic solution, which might fly because the industry will push for it. And I'm quite cognizant of its limitations. In the meantime, it wouldn't hurt to develop a coherent ideological project of what the left should stand for now with regards to data and digital stuff and the rest of it. It would also be good for the left to come up with what it stands for in general. <laughs> yeah. but, yes, that's but kind of a theme in this podcast. Um, can, can I jump in here? So, so I, I, I still that. think yeah. that you're advocating for system change on a global level, um, and that's kind of um, a fast jump from uh, a place that you've been in a few weeks ago in a column and, and a few months ago in a paper that you wrote with uh, Francesca Brio on cities. I would like to, to, to re go back to that before, so, because I think it's in a way contradictory or, or in, a, in the position that you're sort of advocating now so that, that you have to face the global challenges first. Or, 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 no, 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 not first. No, 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 so, Yeah, not priority. So, but you have to sort of so I, th I think the other sort of approach is, is kind of, an, and then you write it, it's, it's, a, it's a wake up call for the left to see data politics as emancipatory, to rethink uh, the welfare state, to rethink uh, trade unions, to rethink um, politics in general. And I would like to sort of get your take on that because that's much more, as you say in, in the paper with Francesca Bria, on a on city level, that's much more precise, concrete. You have a vision um, about how citizens in a city should uh, be, so, uh, be the owners of the data that they create and how cities, for example, could use that data to uh, have a more just and, and, and different policy towards small and middle-sized middle businesses, for example, fostering a different kind of growth, which is not system change, which is almost social democratic in, in, in approach. Not to sort of offend you, but, um, but I would be interested in that contradiction of your I thinking. Don't think, I, I don't think it's a contradiction at all, because ultimately you have to recognize that right now uh, there are many other problems that the left faces, not just the one that had basically lost the plot. Uh, one of the problems that it faces is that it, people no longer believe that a world outside of Google, Amazon, Facebook, and the rest of the gang is even possible, let alone remotely desirable. Uh, if that's the reality that you face, uh, anything, any of the kind of trying balloons or balls, however you say it in English, you can float to show to people that there is an alternative and they can think in different institutional terms and they can imagine things differently from what they are now. It's a step in the right direction. Because ultimately, in the absence of a global project unifying the left, what you can do, at least now, is to do some of these prototypes and see how they work and make sure they actually have the personnel who can work on them and then see what happens afterwards. Uh, so in that sense, Cities offer that opportunity because it comes probably, that level comes closest to where you can affect some change within very limited geographical environment. And in some cities, you actually have the resources to do it. But I don't think that there is any... Uh, idea or any expectation there that you would be able to scale it and somehow uh, enact political change by electing the right mayors and politicians in every city 
at a time, and that way you'll kind of enact some kind of global revolution. In cities where some of the leftist forces do happen to have power, of course you can enact a very different data ownership regime because people would probably trust the city much more they would trust the nation state because of the sensitive issues related to surveillance. It's probably easier to implement some of them in cities because the cities have some of the data already, you know, they have the sensors, they operate, you know, a lot of the infrastructure. So you can actually explain to people that there are ways in which you can imagine things working differently, where you will have a highly flexible public transportation service, which will have all the flexibility of Uber, but you will actually be a part-time owner of it as a citizen, and you will actually see it operating as a public service in a scalable way. So instead of having 5,000 taxes or cars, you'll actually have a bus like Uber taking you to wherever you need to go in a way that's flexible and relies on people putting a request through their phone. I think all of that can be done, and it should be done, but it should be done with a very clear expectation of the limits of that agenda. And you know, I'm endorsing it with a very clear vision of the limits of it. In that, you know, I'm not the kind of person who thinks that mayors will rule the world. Uh, and, you know, if anything, if the city is to be presented as a model for how other social actors have to adapt themselves, the closest that we have is not Barcelona and Berlin. It's Dubai and Singapore. I mean, those are the cities on which other cities will model themselves. And they will have a lot of data and networks and surveillance, but they also have a lot of other things which are not particularly... Uh, encouraging for people of my kind of political orientation. In that sense, I'm conscious of the limitations, but I'm also aware of the need to be doing those things. So I'm not saying that we should just wait for the left to come up with a vision and you know, and then we'll start acting. No, but we, we can do things. We should be doing things in a way that can then build on those efforts to make the case at higher levels, not just at the nation state, but at the European Commission and elsewhere. You have to realize the European Commission spends billions, tens of billions of dollars every year on innovation policy. It's not trivial money. And if you manage to influence the direction in which that money is going, I'm not talking about particular actors, but I'm talking about specific. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Kind of philosophical almost orientations that they have. Does it go towards building decentralized networks? Does it go towards building centralized networks? Does it go towards experimenting with data ownership? Or does it go towards models? Or does it go towards kind of having a very centralized data ownership model? All of that matters. And without having concrete cases, you will not be able to make any of those arguments. Yeah, so maybe it's interesting to jump back uh, to, 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 I don't know, the beginning of, of the, the historical period that we talk about, and you said that you're working on the history of the internet or cyberspace as as a book project, but so what you what you um, describe in a way, or I think what's interesting to understand is, because you talk about state and individuals and companies as actors, and what's the relationship of those um, entities, and, and the history of Silicon Valley is a history 
of uh, a very strong state, so push, pouring a lot of money with a certain uh, uh, intention into technology to strengthen uh, a country, the United States. Um, and, and only that state money uh, made all the individual wealth uh, possible and, 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 and created, in, in a strange twist, the super-individualistic ideology where people don't have that sense of, of changing anything anymore, that loss of politics. So, so I'm curious about um, how to regain, in a way, a sense, how to re-educate, how to, how to tell a different story about this strange relationship um, between uh, an entity that's larger than us, um, which, is, which is what? The city, the state? Uh-huh. And, 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 how to, because, and how to create, um, again, a dynamic... Um, atmosphere for in, in this way so of a, a different concept for society because you need those actors you need them to put them you need to put them in, 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 a, in a fair order and mm-hmm. and so that as you say that has become completely lost and, and is, is it under, is it is it good to understand the history of Silicon Valley of of, of, of the other of, of the time that we live in to to try to to see where we went wrong is, is in the history something that could tell, teach us how yeah. to, where to, where well, to... I don't know. You know I, my fear is that people studying that history, the, the conclusion they'll draw is that it's, it always, it's always good to have another Cold War. Uh, you know, and, and that's kind of a plausible reading of it. You know, it would, it, it's not, you know, let's be real. I mean, there is a reason why in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of commentators, at least in the U.S., started using this term military Keynesianism. I mean, it's a very good explanation. Yes, to some extent, you had you know, an economy that was heavily stimulated by government spending, but much of that spending was in military purposes, and this is what gave us Silicon Valley. So looking at it from the perspective of what is it that we can learn from it now is a bit dangerous because even in America, you would never be able to make the arguments that technology industry needs so much money if you didn't have the Cold War. It's not as if, you know, everybody back then was this nice, good Keynesian guy and, you know, and now they all became these neoliberals who don't want to spend any more money on technology. Back then, there was no question. You needed to protect yourself from the Soviet invasion to some extent, and the same thing was happening in the Soviet Union. So, I mean, it's useful to an extent to look at it, to pierce the ideological bubbles that Silicon Valley has erected about its own origins and the startup culture and, you know, the story of this creative people in garages and flip-flops and smoothies and, you know, and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and, I mean, I'm, I'm done doing that, you know. So, uh, at this point, to me, what is much more interesting in that history is asking a very different question. And that question is, how come that countries that have realized that technology and having control over technology is the key to accelerated industrial economic development, how come most of them, save for China in the last 15 years, failed to develop to the extent that the United States did? And here, I mean, partly the question, of course, is resolved by saying that it's all about military funding, but partly it's not. And partly, you know, my conclusion, based on studying some archival documents and studying a little bit of it uh, historically, is that ultimately, Countries that did recognize it, many of them in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, once they have realized it, even Europe, 
once they have realized it in the 1970s, early 1980s, they put forward an agenda. And they said, we would like to have our own autonomous technology policy. We would like to be able to engage in protectionist measures to nurture our own domestic computer and information processing industry. And we would like to make sure that foreign companies that operate in our countries, and by foreign companies, they just meant IBM and Boros computers in most cases. We would like to make sure that once they operate in our countries, they have to meet certain requirements, store data locally, work with local computer manufacturers, share intellectual property, and so forth. All of those measures were eventually defeated by the United States, first individually, and then collectively through uh, trade forums like GATT and then WTO in the 1990s. And that's it. You know, Now, if you want to engage in any of the measures that America engaged in to build its own high-tech industry, you'd be taken to WTO. You know, and there, the only hope is that Trump will destroy it before. <laughs> but ultimately, that, 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 that's the reality in which... So you're saying uh, uh, free trade was an ultimate protectionistic uh, well, tour. Free, uh, free trade always functioned like that. That was the case with the, you know, the British experience in the 19th century. Once you have the most developed economy, it was the most advanced industry, and you have products to sell, of course you would like free trade. But what happened in the last 40 years is that the United States took a very kind of policy-oriented approach to it. They came to countries and they said, well, no, if you want to develop your own domestic industry, forget about it. We'll give you some money. So they already started engaging in some kind of corporate social responsibility programs. They argued for self-regulation when it came to Europe. So they wanted to have OECD guidances on privacy and data storage, uh, which they pushed for instead of having strong data protection regulation from the very beginning. You could have had strong data protection in Europe from 1980s onwards. Americans defeated it. So I mean, to me, that's a much more interesting story because it essentially resituates the question of technology in the question of economic development and economic policy and global trade. And there you can really, I mean, think about it now. So if I'm a city like Barcelona, or Berlin, and I want to develop my own autonomous Uber-like platform that will be used by my citizens. I need to engage in certain measures with regards to data storage, data ownership, uh, and so forth, which under certain trade agreements, if you are preceded, for example, with TTIP, right, they would be illegal. So a company like Uber would be able to take Barcelona and Berlin to court and say that, well, you're engaging in the protectionist measures that, while they might benefit your citizens, would threaten our profits. And we enter this city on the assumption that we'll be able to recoup our investments. That's how it works. So, and uh, to me, that's a much more interesting story. And if you really want to understand the key to U.S. dominance, you cannot just focus on military spending. Because it's not just about military spending. You really have to understand how, in virtually every single country, the efforts to build such uh, an alternative have failed, and why in countries where you had successive companies, like Olivetti in Italy, for example, but they eventually floundered. And it's not just a matter of them not being adaptive enough to changing market environment. You know, that's a story that you would hear from the kind of proponents of the American version. It's not just that. It's very proactive shaping of trade and international law to get beneficiary position for the United States. 
So if you look at the, so now we're back into geo, geopolitics, and if you look at the situation now, um, thinking about the U.S. as in the past being have been very successful in shaping uh, the world in international order in their in their favor, so to speak. But now there's this um, war of gi- the giants going on with China and the U.S., who seems to be. Uh, not really taking care of uh, the advantage that they used to have. They're not mm-hmm. thinking strategically while you have uh, China as a global opponent who seems seem to be th- thinking long-term, seem to be thinking um, uh, st- strategically and, and in a structured way about and going back to, to the war on you know, b- building the best AI uh, technology, for example. And mm-hmm. then you have Europe as a smaller, uh, slower player, maybe. How do you see this um, playing out in the next few years? Well, I think that Obama actually had a rather coherent strategy for containing China. And uh, I think he would have done much of what Trump has done now in terms of blocking Chinese investments flowing to companies that are key to American development. So, you know, I'm absolutely sure that Obama would have also blocked the Broadcom uh, Qualcomm merger. I'm absolutely sure that would have blocked many of the takeovers that Chinese companies now have wanted to done to make of the American companies. But Obama, of course, also wanted to continue with the global commerce regime that America has been building for many, many years. And he wanted to continue with the kind of military buildup of the U.S. and in Southeast Asia, precisely to contain China. Now, what we are seeing with Trump is that essentially... You know, it's, 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 it's a different mental and spiritual orientation. You know, it's managing the decline of which, you know, Trump is kind of, you know, he does not acknowledge it explicitly, but, you know, he's kind of managing the decline. It's no longer trying to build a, you know, do the pivot to Asia and have a theater of military operations in the South China Sea. You know, it's not that. No, it's uh, looking but inwards. even managing the decline, given the superiority of the U.S. military potential of its economy, of its enormous cultural power and the rest of it, you know, it can still be quite dangerous and harmful. And in that sense, you know, you should not expect the decline to happen tomorrow. I mean, he, he might still manage it to some extent in a way that would still cause a lot of damage to all the other countries outside of it. The good side to it, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that many of the soft interventions that America has always done at the ideological level to keep everybody happy, uh, they're becoming visible. And you know, in that sense, it's very hard for a country not to pose the kind of questions about the direction of its own development. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about Germany, Italy, Spain, you know, name any country. Uh, it's very hard for these countries not to pose questions about the path on which they have been geopolitically and economically for the past 10 years now that they could have easily ignored if Clinton was reelected and everybody would just be continuing on some kind of autopilot, as, you know, was the case with Obama. Am I clear? Enough? Yeah, very. Uh, so, you know, in, in that sense, uh, I'm not entirely, you know, you, you can say whatever you want about Trump, and, you know, you can acknowledge him not being a very competent leader, but it does not mean that it would not have at least some positive effects uh, on 
the difficulty with which certain forces in certain countries... So you mean a wake-up call, basically? Well, I mean, it's not a wake-up call, but, you know, look, I, I think that the U.S. hegemony, if you want to put it that way, in the global economy, rested on a combination of factors. Some of them were explicit and some of them were implicit. You know, the explicit ones we understood. They had tons of military bases. They had the dollar. You know, that, that, that's kind of the foundations of U.S. power that everybody understood quite well. The implicit power, you know, the way in which technology companies helped the NSA, which was revealed by Snowden, but few people understood the full implications of it. The ways in which, uh, you know, Silicon Valley managed to rebuild the U.S. as an attractive cultural force because everybody wanted to be like those entrepreneurs. All of these mechanisms are slowly becoming explicit in that you really need to make a conscious decision in your own country, whatever that country is, whether you would like to stick with that program, given the cost of associating yourself with Trump, or whether you would like to pursue some other path. So in that sense, you, know, you can be as negative as you want to be about Trump. You know, ultimately, it does not mean that it would not have at least some positive consequences for the ability of countries to question the path on which they have been, and also question the way in which they have outsourced their thinking about many matters, military intelligence, industrial policy, trade policy, technological policy, to the United States. So there are um, those who would argue, looking at the rise of, and the size, and the, the monopolistic um, positions in terms of data that companies like um, Facebook and Google have in the West, that there would come there would be a cycle, there would be a, uh, like a severe pushback, looking back in American history, uh, when you had the big trusts uh, being built up, eventually there was a political pushback breaking up, because there was, basically politicians became afraid of the political power that the companies uh, had, and there came a populist pushback, breaking up uh, big companies, and so forth. So you could argue, some argue that you see uh, the history moves in cycles, and that the time will come um, for mm-hmm. breakup, um, politically motivated breakup, and economically maybe of um, the Facebook and, and the Googles. But I'm going back to your your argument. I'm, I'm remembering the note that Mark Zuckerberg had on his yeah. bench uh, when he was testifying in front of Congress, and he. One of the one of the um, one of the arguments, one of uh, the sentences of his notes was, if if you start talking about uh, a breakup of companies, re- remind them that what will happen is that Chinese companies then will take over American markets. If you break up Facebook, then uh, the Chinese will 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 take over. So. So it's kind of, instead of, it's just going back to what you're talking about with soft power, instead of saying, yes. you know, we're here to connect people, uh, now his argument was, well, if you don't have us, you'll have the Chinese. Uh, and that's a much more crude way of reasoning than, than saying to people, we'll, we have something for you here. Well, I don't think it's crude. It's uh, what the Chinese are doing. I mean, the, the Chinese... No, it's re- have, real uh, politics, real well, politics. Well, but in, in a sense, yes, but also I, I think the, the, he... he Zuckerberg's position is safer than he would let it go. There are parts of American history you could look at. Yes, you could look at the populist revolt against the big monopolies, but you can also look at the last 30, 40 years of changes in antitrust law, which basically have made it almost impossible to do anything about monopolies unless they meet conditions that are very narrow. And then you would actually intervene to do something about them. Uh, So I don't really think that the... 
law as it currently stands is necessarily on the sides on the side of people who would like to break up those companies. So of course, you can change the law. Given the number of law businesses companies have, it's going to be very difficult. I myself, I rarely dabble in accusing these firms of being monopolists. It's a very tricky question, and I would actually argue that for people on the left, that's something of a red herring. So I would not pay. Why? Well, in part because you know here we might really get into an esoteric debate. So it's you need to know the exact criteria for why you think they're monopolists. If you would say that you know they have certain assets, they have they they've reached a certain size, which should make it very hard for others to disrupt them because who else is going to find the money to you know uproot Google, Amazon? You know, I would argue. Who's gonna? Who's not no, gonna? No, find? SoftBank with two hundred billion dollars would easily jump over that hurdle. No, but with the last wave of trust busting, there was also a political argument saying it's a problem for society if company. Basically, there's sure. a problem for society if, if companies, privately owned well, companies, depa- become too big because then they would have too much economic and political sure, power. But that was an important part but, of but, the argument. Fine. So you can argue, you make the case. You can make the case based on the size of the companies. Mm-hmm. When it comes to data, I just think that again. It's a red herring. I'm not trying to build, at least my vision, is not some kind of a you know nice pre-industrial farm-based uh, society where Look, people have neither. their own little <laughs> data farms on which they cultivate their own little data algorithms. Oh, so we need monopolies. We need big entities, you mean. Bourgeois. Well, I mean, like size and growing size is a natural feature of capitalist kind of way of life. I mean, it's normal for them to get big. If you are not big, you're being eaten by others. In that sense, you know, there are also then certain advantages that come from scale, which does not mean that we should stay with three companies controlling everything, but it's a good question to ask to what extent data is a natural monopoly, and the more of it you have, the more value it produces. Who is going to appropriate that value, whether it's going to be SoftBank, Saudi Arabia, or a bunch of investors in Silicon Valley, or whether it's going to be my city or somebody else, you know, some community in which I participate, it's a different question. And I think that you know, having this debate about what's the right size for a search engine to be, it's a nice question for kind of, or the liberal German economists, part of the, some kind of anti-cartel office. It's not a question that left should be spending a lot of effort on. Like, but that's I think my, what, what, that's what, what my Karin, yeah. But what Karin is, I, think is pointing I out is... I completely disagree is, with you. Is, <laughs> I mean, you say that there's, uh, that's the capitalist logic to go, grow ever, ever bigger, but but the capitalist logic is also that it's so far grounded in some sort of democratic framework, and and the, the question is I don't think um, so. So far, so in a way, <laughs> no, so, no, I just of, don't think so at well, all. I mean, there was historically it has been because of the struggles by workers and others. It's, there is nothing in capitalism that requires democracy. No, there is nothing. I, 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 I agree, but so historically, it was a democratic approach in breaking up the, um, the yeah. But but so the question is 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 the is is capitalism faced by something different, which is more powerful, an authoritarian, techno-communist empire that's much more able to um, roll out the combination of big data usage, uh, um, sort of surveillance, um, and state funding that's necessary to produce... Uh, well, you have it in China. I mean, look, yeah, so China... Is look, so, I mean, th- th- there are two questions here. There is a pragmatic type of intervention. If I want to clock Google's lobbying power in Brussels, I'll unleash all their liberal economists I can find in Germany to go and make the case that they somehow are, are, are a monopoly. 
very easy to do, go do it. So politically, of course, you can be doing it in the absence of any other alternatives. Of course, you can be investigating to what extent they are abusing the fact that they have Android. But that's a liberal pastime, you say. That's well, a waste I mean, of time. It's, it's not going to – first of all, I, I really doubt that much will come out of it other than clogging its lobbying channels and having them spend even more on lobbyists. I mean, it's, it's a nice thing to do if other paths are blocked. I would still like to have more people spending the time imagining how you can build a world where data – is collected in a way that does not compromise your privacy, where it's used for collective public purposes, where it's not necessarily broken into pieces. Because you, know, you have to understand that capitalists also have another solution to it. Fine, some people don't like monopolies. Let's all own our own data in a way they would be able to sell it. So let's own it as private property, set up a secondary exchange where we can trade it, and everything will also work nicely. That's another vision. We essentially say that instead of getting all of the synergies that come from Google knowing where I am and what I've been searching for and what I've, you know, all the emails that I've been having, that comes from scale, right? You can basically ditch that and go for a model where everything is so decentralized that every single piece of data is priced and you need to pay for it. That's another vision, right? Which capitalists, a lot of them, would also be happy with. That's not a vision that I would like to see more of. What I would like to see more of is people thinking about ways in which you can go completely beyond these companies and imagine a regime Let's try it at the city level. Let's try it at the community level, whereby data is aggregated. It's owned by citizens. It cannot be sold. There are certain synergies that arise from aggregating all that data. And there is some kind of a fund on top of it that can finance the development of new services, applications, and so forth on top of that data. To me, you know, would that, if that is owned by citizens, if that's owned by us in one way or another, would I care about its size? No. I would want it to be as big as possible, assuming you can account for all of the privacy and surveillance violations, which will inevitably follow. So it's a utopian vision. I'm fully well aware. Is that what you say? Esoterical? Is that uh, the esoteric vision? No, it's not esoteric. But I mean, I understand that you know, I'm not confronting the power of the state as it currently exists. I mean, that's why you know, all you can do in such cases is, let's try it at the city level, because the temptation to essentially go and abuse that data for surveillance is much smaller. But ultimately, that would still end up as a prototype. But I, again, I would insist on the question of monopoly about these firms not being a very useful political question in the long term. In the short term, it can do those firms a lot of damage. I just don't think it will give us, I just don't think that I would necessarily want to spend any of my time on making Google decouple Android from Google search engine. Like really, it's not my battle. Sure. No, I see your point, but I, I still completely disagree with you because, I mean, thinking about both because the that we talk, what we talked about before that if you have um, your vision is basically using the um, advantages of scale but for the good of of the public uh, which is a very which is a very good idea but I'm I, I fail to understand the contradiction between both fighting the monopolistic power of these companies which I think is important because it comes with economic power it comes with economic power uh, Political, sure, because in the political current, power sure. goes hand in hand with sure. economic power. Sure, because in the and current, it will be much harder yeah. to get to where you want if you don't do both those sure, things simultaneously. Can, can, well, so it's like, my, my what, why choose? 
Well, because and also because if you, you, act you politically, need to break up, to choose. I think you need to break up those companies for new things to be able to grow. Well, I can assure you, if you break up those companies, the only people who will benefit in the short term would be people who go to Davos and talk about data as an. Well, asset they class. benefit from everything anyway. No, no, but so. I think you're underestimating it because there is an army of people waiting in the wings, including a lot of venture capitalists who would like to break up those firms and make sure you can actually start treating data as a resource for which you need to pay. And I can assure you that the left has zero project as an alternative, which will be able to do something with this decentralized vision of a world where Google is broken up, and we can somehow repurpose that to take it in any different direction. I can assure you the direction which it would go, it would go towards data being priced I think it's according also, to its market value. I think it's, it would also be important in terms of just realizing, because I think one problem that we have right now is this idea of inevitability, that... Uh, there is no politics in this. It's just uh, the talent of people. It's just a you know, consequence of uh, good engineering and the venture, smart venture capital that is just growing into these you know, brilliant companies. Mm-hmm. And at, at least what you would have is a more um, critical take on and letting in the idea of um, the... Uh, another type of stru- another type of structure, not another it's the type of doing debate things. In German econ- economics since 1930s, I mean, it's not it's not an alternative approach to the size and the question of monopoly. I mean, the idea that big companies, once they grow to a certain size, start exercising some no, that's political what I'm saying. Power, it's an old idea. But again, I'm just not sure what value is in it for a progressive project to keep pursuing it. Whereby, you know, my vision, it's, it's an understatement, and it's actually a miscasting, even of the U.S. experience. In the U.S. progressive movement, you had two wings. You had one wing that was completely fascinated with Taylorism and scientific management, and which basically wanted to take advantage of scale and repurpose it for its own purposes. And then you had people like Brandeis, who actually thought that big companies cause big trouble. Right? And it's not obvious which No, he basically wanted to go back place. to an agricultural age. So, I mean, there's techno... But, but, but again, that's the... Hostile. I mean, go and talk to this, you know, or, or, like, go read Wilhelm <laughs> Rob. So, What's so, the idea? You go on a farm, you live in Swiss village, yeah. you grow your own animals, that's and my you dream. don't need the agriculture. Well, I mean, fine. But again, <laughs> if you are from a certain background, it even looks affordable and doable. I'm just not sure that it's necessarily a very appealing visual of social emancipation. It's the only pushback that, that exists right now towards these companies. This is the idea of uh, um, reducing their market power, reducing their uh, growing political power. And you talk to yourself, about, and you've written yourself about how much they... Um, had control over the, the Obama agenda and so yes, forth. Yes, so, but, and, know, and that's but, a, but I'm, I'm afraid you're trying to go something. to a social democratic world that no longer exists or even materially possible. No, I'm just trying to do two things at the same time. Well, like, again... I, I, and you're tr- I, I, trying to move to a utopia in, like, one jump. Well, I, I, I don't think I'm trying to... Well, nobody has accused me of being a techno-utopian, so you're the first one, and it's always... I wanted to uh, introduce always, you as a techno-dystopian, so, but, but now I, I see sure, that you're a utopian. I'm not sure that my, my vision is any more utopian than your vision of social democracy delivering the goods. Fair enough, fair enough. So, 
to, uh, to to mark this point, it's a premiere that we went overboard, so sort of time-wise, not uh, not uh, not in content, um, but it shows the <laughs> intensity of the ever uh, ever uh, recurring struggle of social democracy to justify its uh, sort of historic place and failure, maybe um, um, to 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 to, um, to I think we're we're uh, in a way sort of still in the phase of describing the problem. I think we should. Um, invite you back to talk really about sort of what is the progressive agenda here. I have one sort of geopolitical question that I would like to ask at the end or towards the end um, because it's sort of it's, it was always, I was always curious about why you were where you were so early on in your perspective on things. So, so my, my question would be what's the what's the Meaning of being from Belarus, so from from a different historical background, from from a country that sort of is out of the ruins of the Cold War. So, sort of, how did you reflect on that? So, sort of, is that um, constituents of con uh, uh, fundamental for you for your worldview or your view of technology and politics? I doubt I'll give you anything interesting, to be honest, in response to this question. Uh, I, I've been asked that many times. I think I've asked it. I'm asked this question every year. It's a disaster, always. To, uh, I, I, you know, to hear. I, I'm not sure. I, I can I can give you a meaningful answer. I mean, in part, I've laughed at 17 years ago, and I reflect on it somewhat, and I go back occasionally. But I cannot possibly. I mean, you you can, of course, historically, if you look at it, not intellectually, where I am now. Historically, you can, of course, say that the reason why I became well known. Partly was that my message of my first book, The Nant Illusion, resonated with my background, and the media needed a poster boy that they could celebrate as somebody coming from there, writing a message saying that all of you in the West are full of shit. So I don't know if you need to censor that, but uh, you know, so historically, you can answer that question that way, looking at the reception of my work. The way in which it has shaped my own thinking, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you much about it because it hasn't. Uh, But that's quite, no, no. I mean, uh, I, I, uh, I know. Simplistic. But I mean, that's who you are. So that is your the story. No, so <laughs> no. I mean, uh, it, of course, it has shaped your thinking. Well, you know, at the age of 17, I went and lived uh, in Bulgaria, and I studied at an American university. And I can tell you, I was shaped much more by that experience by than by 17 years living in a mining town. So, uh, and then I had other experiences. But I can assure you that the. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't have a relationship to Belarus that is particularly deep. I barely follow what's happening there. So, But I mean, you yeah, I can, maybe I can tell you that I rebelled against the industrial capitalism of my parents who worked in the mines and decided to focus on, you know, the digital. But it's just, it's not true. At least I don't see it as true. It's a good story. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a good story. You should, you should tell that story. You should stick to that story. Uh, people love stories like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so with that, on that note, um, on that cheerful note uh, of a failing uh, mining industry, um, data mining <laughs> it's industry. Actually, it's the only oh, it's, that's prospering in Belgium. Okay, so on this even more optimistic note, um, exactly. Thank you for sure, thank you. Uh, enlightening us. Um, thank you for being here, and um, we're. Uh, thank you for being a utopian. Yeah, um, very much needed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.